Hello and welcome to PRS Radio Danang and Hoi An with me, Eugene Leonard. You can call me Mr. Turpod. I hope you're doing really well this week, ladies and gentlemen. I can tell you something. I am sure glad the rain has departed. I don't know about you, but January was an incredibly difficult month on the head for me. As the Beatles so beautifully put it, it's been a long, long, cold, lonely winter. I can't tell you how many times I've been singing their fantastic song, Here Comes the Sun, in my head as I zip up and down the road <laughs> from Da Nang to Hoi An in the last couple of weeks. Now PRS Radio, Da Nang and Hoi An will share insightful personal stories of expats in the community as well as local residents. On this episode I speak to Mai McCann. Mai's family originally hailed from Belfast. They emigrated to New Zealand when she was only four months old. Mai shares snippets of her incredible life story, including growing up in New Zealand, her love of Ireland, working as a nurse in the outback of Australia, and how she survived and ultimately thrived after a very difficult marriage breakup, which she says nearly killed her. I'd like to thank Mai for her openness and honesty she demonstrated in sharing this very personal story with us. It will, I have no doubt about it, help somebody, somewhere, sometime. She is an excellent example of how people can overcome great difficulties in their lives and not only survive but thrive thereafter. Now after the breakup of this marriage, Mai found herself in Hoi An about 15 years ago and began volunteering at a number of places before setting up Hearing and Beyond in Vietnam which is located uh, in the local area. Hearing and Beyond is a small privately funded NGO that assists deaf and hard of hearing children in the area. Now, I have visited Hearing and Beyond myself and it is an amazing school. I encourage anyone in the area to contact Mai and go and visit it if you can, or even better still, donate a few pounds if you've got the money. I'll put a link to our website and Facebook page and all in the show notes. We hear much, much more about Hearing and Beyond in the podcast. PRS Radio Denang and Hoi An podcast can be found on Apple, Google, Breaker, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast and any other platforms where podcasts are available. Now remember to subscribe on whichever platform you listen on and like, comment and share. Thank you very much. Enjoy the shows with Mr. Terpod. You're not alone. Good morning, Mai McCann, and welcome to PRS Radio Da Nang and Hoi An. It is an absolute honor and privilege to have you on the show. You are an inspirational member of this community. Thank you, Eugene. It's great to be here with you today, and fantastic opportunity for my kids to get the word out about them. Excellent. And when you talk about your kids, Mai is referring to Hearing and Beyond in Vietnam, which is a small privately funded <clears throat> non-government, not-for-profit organization which you set up in 2008. That's right. But before we get to that, Mai, and you have told me the name is Mai, so I apologize <laughs> if I call you May at any stage through the show. Now, before we get to that, Mai, we're going to take a real troll back through mm. your life because you have uh, one or two interesting experiences mm. to share. One or two, and one or two that I can't share. <laughs> Now, I believe probably the biggest decision of your life was probably taken before you were even born. Yeah. 
Now, your family hailed originally from Belfast in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of the 50s, your parents made the decision to emigrate from Belfast to New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Looking back on that, I'd say most people would agree it was an absolutely inspired decision um, from your father and mother. You were only four months old at the time when you went, when you got to New Zealand, where, whether you sailed to New Zealand or yeah, flew. Yeah, sailed. <laughs> sailed off to Galilee. Um, now, in the conversations I've had with you, two things have really come across. One, the gratitude you have for what New Zealand gave you. Yeah. You really made a wonderful life for yourself there and in Australia. The second thing that came across to me was a kind of sense of loss, a sense of loss for things that you maybe didn't experience because of this emigration mm -hmm. from Belfast to New Zealand. So can we please start there? Uh, can you explain to us what that loss is for you? Um, the loss from not living in Belfast. Mm -hmm. So for us kids, and I have seven siblings, um, we basically grew up, it was our family. We didn't have cousins, uncles, aunties. Uh, we did have one set of my mum's sister and her family lived nearby for a few years, but not for long. And then they moved to the North Island. So really, it was us as a family. Um, whereas all my cousins in Belfast, they have this fantastic network, family network, which I think most of my siblings and I, as adults, we realised we missed out on that. Now, we had an interesting conversation about this, Mai, and what fascinated me was you talked about when you arrived back in Ireland, when the plane touched down oh. on the tarmac, you suddenly felt yeah. at home. And that was like two decades later. Yeah, that and was powerful. That was really powerful. Um, so... New Zealand is all I've ever known because I was so young. I have no memory of Belfast. So New Zealand has always been home for me. And then I moved to Australia when I was about 30 and I've been there for a long time, but it's never been home. Then my first trip back to Belfast, literally, as you said, the plea and touchdown, I was home. Absolutely everything about the whole country was so familiar. It's like I knew it. It was in my blood. And I must admit, I had that same feeling when I arrived in Hoi An. It's really interesting. Hoi An is home. Hoi An is home. Yeah. What does home mean to you? I think um, it's it's not something I can actually put my finger on. It's something inside here. It's in my heart. It's not, you know, uh, I mean, everybody loves the people. Everybody loves the countryside. It's something different to that. It's something within the soul that says this is where you belong. Even though it's not always easy, um, this is definitely home. You know, when you were talking there, well, would, I, I'm sure some of our listeners will have went to Rosie's Cafe across yeah, yeah, the thing, yeah. and they have a lovely thing up on the wall that says, home is not a place, it is a feeling. That's it, exactly. I never heard that before, but yeah, it is. Now... You talked about Ireland being in your blood. Can you recall growing up in New Zealand and almost hearing, I'm sure you heard it from your, your father's called Paddy, isn't that yeah, correct? And yeah. your mother, Teresa. 
Mother Teresa, I'm sure as a youngster growing up in New Zealand from a very early age, you heard about this mythical land called Ireland. No, to be honest, we didn't really hear a lot because Dad's belief was always once we moved to New Zealand, we assimilated. We became New Zealand um, to the point he never spoke Gaelic again until 30-odd years later when he... 24 years later when he went back to Belfast. But it was almost as if that was left behind. We didn't hear a lot of stories growing up. Um, sometimes we'd get letters from, I think it was mostly Uncle Joe and Uncle Liam, and they would talk about the troubles. And I remember reading those letters later on, so I got more information then. But, yeah, there was always, always a longing to go home. Interesting. It's mm. really, really interesting. Because mm. we, we had a conversation about this very topic the other day. And it's almost like I envy that sense of home that you have. Because I, I sort of look at Ireland as completely different yeah. now. And expats live a very nomadic lifestyle. Yeah. and. You know, I don't really see anywhere as home now. So if you had to go somewhere as your home, would it go? Would you choose New Zealand? Would you choose Ireland? What, what? I couldn't pick one of the three countries. Mm. I couldn't pick one. Mm. I really couldn't. I'm, I'm at home in the three of them. You're at home in the three. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, your, your father and mother made the decision in the mid-50s to leave Belfast. Yeah. And in light of what happened now, for some people who might know their Irish history, this the, the late 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s in Ireland was brutal. Yeah. Incredibly brutal. And I'm assuming that your parents left because as Catholics, uh, they really struggled to find any, any meaningful employment. Yeah, yeah. So being a Catholic, Dad was automatically ruled out of most jobs advertised. In fact, it would say on the billboard, outside the building, no Catholics need apply. Um, so, and he wanted a better life for his children, you know. His children were his life. And so he decided that he would leave home and his plan was to go to New Zealand and go to school at night time to study to be a teacher. He always wanted to be a teacher. So we did. Mum and Dad, five kids on a boat for six weeks, um, all of us with chicken pox, <laughs> um, went to New Zealand and unfortunately Dad had to work so much. He, I think he did overtime two nights a week plus he worked Saturdays so there was no time to study to become a teacher. Um, but for him the sacrifice was worth it for his children to have a, a comfortable life. It's a really, really powerful sacrifice, yeah. a really wonderful yeah. man. Oh, uh, he was father. brilliant. He, he was the Irish Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> he was. <laughs> Excellent. Looked like him, believed his beliefs. He was very much like Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> That's beautiful. You know, I, I'm assuming your father had no regrets. None. No. Absolutely none. He said it was the best decision he ever made. For mum, it, w it took two years two years for her to settle in before she got over the homesickness and began to accept it. And every 
immigrant that she met thereafter, she would always say to them, give yourselves two years. Don't go back home within two years. Wait two years and then decide. Really great mm, advice. Yeah. And a lot of families did stay because of what mum said. Excellent. They gave themselves the two years and then they were more settled. And it, it's incredible that it took t 24 years before they returned to Belfast in what, the late 70s, early 1980? Yeah, uh would have been 80, 1980, I think. And the only reason they went was because us kids pulled together and paid for their trip. Otherwise, they couldn't have got there. Now, 1980, well, that's very, very interesting, May. So can you clear something up for us? Um, because, you know, there are many momentous dates in Irish history. Mm. There's 1916, obviously, mm. the Rising, um, the War of Independence. Now, 1980 is a very, uh, very, very important date for Irish history with the birth of one Eugene Leonard, your host. <laughs> now, do you think that they went home because of my birth? I have a feeling I heard something about there's a ginger child born <laughs> that we have to meet because mum always wanted a red-headed child. And no way. She, she did, and out of eight of us, she never got one. Well, so. that is wonderful. So that's probably the reason they chose that time. I, I think so. Yeah. Now, getting back to serious conversation, my McCann. <laughs> 1980 in Belfast was a horrendous yeah. Yeah. period. Like, it must have been such a culture shock for your parents. And I think if nothing else, that trip confirmed to them they made the right decision because the troubles were, you know, horrific. And coming from New Zealand, this quiet little little town of a country where back then nothing really happened, to go into the middle of Belfast, oh, my God, that mum was petrified the whole time. Um, you know, obviously it was fantastic meeting up with their brothers and sisters again, but mum was terrified. It, it was a war zone. It was a war zone, yeah. And I remember mum saying that she was out shopping one day with her sister and she'd left her handbag on the counter and then forgot about it and walked off somewhere and then she realised and got into a panic and said to her sister, I've left my bag, I've left my bag. And... Um, Auntie Kathleen says, Jesus, don't worry about it, Teresa. It'll still be sitting there on the counter. Mum says, no, no, someone will have stolen it. She says, are you serious? They'll think it's a bomb. They won't touch it. <laughs> sure enough, it was still there when they went back. <laughs> Fascinating. Do you realise you went into an Irish accent there? It's funny, you know, we grew up, um, we didn't have a lot of Irish, my parents didn't have a lot of Irish friends when we grew up. We had more Scottish. Mm-hmm. And oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah. So, so whenever, but whenever I hear a Scottish or an Irish accent, we go back into a slight, because we learned as children, once you step out the front door, you speak like a Kiwi, or you get ridiculed. <laughs> so we would go out and we'd talk like Kiwis. We'd come home and we'd switch. Mm -hmm. And it would even be so easy that like. If I was talking to you and talking to a Vietnamese person standing beside you, if I was talking to the two of you, depending who I'm looking at, which accent I have, Kiwi or Irish, and I could switch mid-sentence, mm -hmm. I can't do it anymore. In fact, when I leave here, it'll take me about 30, 40 minutes yeah. to go back to 
my New Zealand or Australian accent, whatever I've got. <laughs> well, that's so interesting because the first day I met you, I was like, oh, my, my, my can has a really Irish, strong Irish accent again. Then I went down to visit you at Hearing and Beyond. As I was standing at the gate, I was listening to you talking. I was like, who is this lady? <laughs> Completely different accent. Yeah. And it, it really blew my, yeah. blew my mind. Yeah. Now, um, my, what was life like for you growing up in New Zealand? Oh, God, it was a lot like Vietnam, to be honest. It was because we lived in a satellite town. We lived in Mosgiel, which is about... Back then, it was, I think it was 10 miles from Dunedin, the big city. Mm. Um, and we just grew up basically in the countryside. Come the weekend, we'd leave home at 8 o'clock in the morning. We know we have to be home when the um, woolen mills whistle blew at 5 o'clock. <laughs> no one worried about you. You'd go for miles, you know. Um, I went to a small Catholic school, which... Yeah, had its pros and its cons, I must say. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went to a mixed high school, which was fantastic. But it was very much, there was never any worries as a child. You never thought any problem. Very different from today. And it's still like that in Hoi An. Mm -hmm. You know, the kids play on the streets, they go wandering. Nobody worries about them. It, it sounds exactly like um, growing up in Monaghan for me. What you yeah. just described yeah. there. Um, now, yesterday, <laughs> yesterday I just confirmed a piece of information with you. You enrolled in nursing, nursing, <laughs> at seventeen years old, yeah. Yeah. and you were a qualified nurse by the by nineteen. Eighteen months later, you were the only nurse on night duty at a twenty-bed women's ward. I was like, when I read that message you sent me yesterday, I was like, what? Yeah. That is incredible. And keep in mind, I'm an enrolled nurse. I'm not a registered nurse, mm -hmm. so there's a difference. Um, but back then it was normal. It was very normal. I would have, um, on an afternoon shift, I, there would be me and probably three third-year students, mm -hmm. and I would be the senior nurse mm -hmm. responsible for everything. But that was that was normal back then. It was just the way it was. And what made you pursue a career in nursing? My best friend wanted to be a nurse. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I wanted to be, so I thought, oh, well, I'll just do what she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there was no passion to become a nurse. Mm. You know, there was nothing like that. It was just, oh, Rosie's doing it. I'll do it too. And well, it was a big decision in my life. Looking back, mm -hmm. looking back, it was a very good decision. So moving to New Zealand was your parents' decision. Becoming yep. a nurse was Rosie's decision. Yep. Excellent. So far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, it becomes my decision. Eventually. So you moved to Australia. You went to work a lot in Australia. And we had a, an interesting conversation. And the way I summed it up in my head was, it's a bit like Ireland and England in many ways. You know, there's a lot more opportunities oh, for people God, in England, uh, mm. like, say, during yeah, the 80s yeah. and 90s for employment. Yeah. And when you describe going to Australia, it's, it's exactly how I equated it. Yeah, exactly the same. Um, but I actually do nursing night bush mm -hmm. rather than in the city. In the city, nursing has become like a conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. The patient comes in. Has the procedure, the patient goes on, blah, blah, blah. 
you know, the patient comes in, they go to this ward, they get transferred to another ward, you never see them again. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ike Bush, um, you know everyone. You know everyone in the community. There are no backup staff, so if a trauma comes through, you don't say, oh, 3.30, I'm going home. No, no. If you have to stay till 4 o'clock in the morning, so be it. That's mm-hmm. just the way it is. Plus, we get to do a lot more, Ike Bush. In the city, you have a team to do suturing. You have a team to do cannulation. You have a team to put in a catheter. Ike Bush, you do it. You learn to sew people up. You learn to do x-rays. You learn to put catheters in, you know. Just so much, to me, it's much more like the old-style nursing where you really get to know your patient. Learning on the job. Learning on the job, yeah. The Best way to learn. <laughs> I've been doing it my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> you must have had uh, some very interesting stories to tell from working at, oh, in the outback. Oh, God, yes. Oh, so many. Um, oh, one. I think one good one was we had this elderly doctor and like he was 74 so he's only 10 years older than me now so really he's not that old was he no he's a a youngster um but he was the old time doctor he would check on his patients in the hospital four times a day as well as doing a surgery and he had one young guy come in one day and um had had an accident and lacerated his face so Dr. Bob was sewing them up and um, as he's sewing them up, the guy said, God, I hope you know what you're doing, Doc. You know, this country guy. Um, this is my face, you know. You've got to be careful. He says, don't worry about it, son. He said, I've been sewing for years. He said, in fact, I met my wife a dress once and the stitching looked very similar to this and she was happy with that dress, so it's all right. <laughs> he was gorgeous, that doctor. Absolutely brilliant. Reassuring words. <laughs> he had a way about him. Where was he from? Uh, I think it was from Brisbane, Dr. Bob Reed. Mm. Um, but this was, you know, way out bush in a little town called Connemulla. Connemulla. You told me a really funny story about an Irish doctor a couple of weeks oh. ago. I think people would love to Carton, hear that. Carton. All right. So. The scene was, I was on the afternoon shift, due to finish at 11 o'clock at night, Mm -hmm. and had a day off the next day, which was great because the cricket was on, and I love my cricket. And so one of the local Aboriginal women had come in in labour, and she, as usual, didn't have anyone stay with her, didn't have a support person, and I looked after this lady lots of times. And I said, oh, come on, Marcia, get on with this baby, I want you to have it before I leave because I just love being part of deliveries. Um, so time's going on, she's not doing much and then it's getting close to 11 and she's saying, "My, you're going home soon, please stay with me, please. Yeah, yeah, all right, all right, but get on with it, try and, you know, I want to be away for the cricket tomorrow. So I stayed with her and it's one o'clock, it's two o'clock in the morning, it's three o'clock in the morning and she's going nowhere. And Please don't leave me, my please. I said, no, no, it's all right, I've got a day off. Fast forward, so it gets to like nearly 10 o'clock in the morning 
we've called in another midwife and the young Irish doctor, Carton, he was gorgeous. He, um, he'd never worked Ike Bush before, but he had a lovely demeanour about him. So by this stage, you know, we're all panicking. The baby is finally born and she's flat. She's blue, she's limp, not a breath. So, of course, we just go straight into resuscitation. And by this stage, you could cut the air with the knife. It was so tense. So we got a tube down. We had trouble getting the tube down her throat. And then the midwife had to put in an umbiline, a line into the umbilical cord. And then we had to x-ray her. And in the meantime, we, we know we have to fly her out. But to get the royal flying doctors to come in, we have to tell them we've got a bed at a hospital. But to get a bed at the hospital, we have to have confirmation the flying doctors are coming. So we're really getting quite tense and we're telling this doctor, you know, get on the phone, get on the phone. So he's on the phone and he's going, uh-huh, yeah, right, yeah, okay, I understand. Hangs up the phone, what, what, when are they coming, when are they coming? He said, girls, they're not coming because they won't say they've got a bed, they won't say they've got a plane. You get back on that effing phone and you effing tell them you've got a bed and then you tell the hospital the RFDS are on their way now, you give us a bed. So he gets back on the phone. Uh-huh, yeah, right, okay, I understand. He gets off the phone. What, what, are they coming, are they coming? He says, girls, look out the window. I'm like, what? He said, just look out the window. We looked out and there was the mother of all storms there's no way a plane is going to come. And we were so involved in what we're doing. We didn't see the lightning. We didn't hear the thunder. So, you know, we just have to keep handbagging this little baby. What are we going to do? We just have to keep going. We just have to keep going. And then suddenly we hear this. <coughs> and the baby spits out the tube. And Carton just looks at us and says, Girls, we just had the batteries in the wrong way. <laughs> and we were all laughing and crying and to this day that child is fine that's a, that's a beautiful story <laughs> really a, a good typical Irish doctor there <laughs> oh he was he was lovely okay my thank you very much for that story uh, we're going to take a little short break uh, join us again after it thank you very much hello and welcome back to PRS Radio Denang and Hoi An in the studio today, I have Mai McCann. Mai McCann is the founder of Hearing On Beyond in Vietnam, which is a small, privately funded, non-governmental organization assisting deaf and hard of hearing children in the local area. Now, May set this up. Mai set this up in 2008. First part of the show, we heard all about Mai's family background, leaving Belfast to settle in New Zealand. We heard about her becoming a nurse. <laughs> I was about to say none. <laughs> at the age of 19 and working in the outback of Australia. Now, the other day, my when I was talking to you, I, you know, my mother always said to me and my parents always said to me, you know, treat everybody the same. Don't discriminate against anybody. And, you know, I've always brought that mm, into my life when yeah. it comes to, when it comes to women. You know, I, 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 I'll take anybody home. <laughs> <laughs> you could be a McCann. <laughs> exactly. We take anyone home. <laughs> we could take anyone home. <laughs> now, my, you know, there's a really, there is a really powerful 
expression by Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese monk, mm -hmm. uh, and he said, there is a touch of suffering in all happiness. And the other day when we, I was talking to you about relationships and you were telling me about uh, your marriage and how the seeds of your happiness and the seeds of your life here in Hoi An today was basically sown out of a very difficult yeah. divorce. Yeah. And when I asked you about that divorce and your husband, the first thing that really surprised me was, you said, which one? <laughs> Oh, do we have to go there? <laughs> I, I was like, how did you have time for all this, May? <laughs> can, can you talk to me about how that divorce affected you and that suffering and what you learned out of it and how it has made you into the person yeah. you are today? Sure. Um, so I've had, I've actually had three long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. And with each one came great happiness, mm -hmm. lots of love, but also pain and sorrow. Mm -hmm. um, the last relationship was the one that, the ending of it really, literally nearly killed me. Mm -hmm. And I would have to say if it wasn't for my son, I would have committed suicide. Mm -hmm. I know that. Mm -hmm. But because of my son, I wouldn't do it. So I knew that to heal from that, I had to get out of peace. I just had to get right away. So I've always done volunteering wherever I've been and my eldest sister, Teresa, um, I should say my number one sister, Teresa, um, had said to me, go to Vietnam. We've been there for a holiday and tourism hasn't hit yet, so go to Vietnam. So over the next six months, everything pushed me to Vietnam. It didn't matter where I looked, what I heard, what I saw. It all said Vietnam. So I did. I came to Vietnam and the plan was to stay here for three months and then go on home to Belfast, which I'd been wanting to do for a long time. Um, and again, I arrived in Hoi An and I was home. Um, and so, you know, leading up to arriving in Hoi An, I was in a bad place mentally and I really had gone through I guess you would call it a trauma. But looking back at it now, and it's 14 years later and I'm still here, um, if I had to go through all that again to get me to where I am today, I would do it. Even though it was so difficult at the time, it was meant to happen to bring me here. So out of all that pain and sorrow, I actually started to grow and learn to love life with so much gratitude. But it's only because of that pain that I now have so much happiness. That's incredibly powerful, my. And when you said it to me the other day, uh, we were at Nana Coffee together. When you said it to me the other day, I, I related it a lot to what addicts and alcoholics and people go through. A lot yep. of people go through a lot of suffering yep. and they, they numb their pain with alcohol, drugs yep. and gambling, lots of different things. Now, you obviously learned a lot through that experience. Everybody suffers. Yeah. There is suffering, yeah. as the Buddha says, or said. I'm not sure if it's, <laughs> I'm not sure if it's still about. <laughs> um, what advice would you have for people going through an experience like that? Um. I would say what my mum always said, 
this too shall pass. And it doesn't matter how dark it gets. One step forward. It won't last forever and you will laugh and smile again and have a life. Did you have a lot of support during that time from family and friends? Did you reach out to people or what, what, what brought you out of it? No, that's my big problem. I don't ask for help. And uh, we'll go into that letter with the school. But no, I isolated myself and, you know, people wanted to help me, but I couldn't. I knew my only way through this was to slog my way through it, do it myself. And um, really, that didn't start happening until I hit Hoi An. What did you do when you hit Hoi An then that really brought about this change? Um, my God, when you see the suffering here, I was volunteering for a charity that helped disabled children. And I spent some time in the orphanage here with looking after some of the sick disabled children. And I thought, I'm in pain because somebody no longer loves me. This is what suffering really is, the life these children live. And just to see the joy and the smile that the simplest thing could bring to these children, but also to their families, just to know that someone cares about them. And so it really turned my way of thinking um, away from, oh, God, I feel so bad, I'm going to die, to actually someone else is worse off than me and I can actually do a little bit, I can do just a little bit to ease their pain. And certainly what they say about volunteering being so rewarding is 100% true. If I had my way, I'd never again work for a salary. I'd only volunteer because the job satisfaction is so much better. What you said there, Mai, reminded me of a number of things. Um, quite often, we are told to, when you're in recovery, get out of self, focus on mm. other people. Yeah. And Paul Garrigan, who's the mindfulness coach at Hope Rehab in Thailand, recorded an excellent video on his YouTube channel, and it, it was, <laughs> I love the video. And the title is, Self-Obsession is, is a Source of Misery in Addiction and Recovery. Yep. And I, I, I recommend this video mm. for loads of people uh, to watch. And what you just said there, he mirrored in his video, because he talked about when he was struggling with anxiety and depression and alcoholism, his counselor <laughs> suggested to him that, uh, I think his counselor said to him, do you ever consider that you think about yourself too much? And he said in it that obviously he didn't really like his counselor for mm -hmm. saying that to him, but it was recommended to him that he go and do some voluntary work. Yeah. And he went and worked with somebody with cerebral palsy. And like Exactly like you said, he realized that his problems paled in so comparison yeah. to somebody else. So yep. when you were speaking there, that really, really stood out yeah. in my head. Yeah, it, I think it takes a long time to get to that point where you realize it's up to me to make it better. 
you know, whether it's addiction or relationship breakups, it takes a long time. You've, I think you've got to go down so far before you can come up again. So that was, what year did you come to Hoi An, sorry? Um, 2006. 2006. In 2008, you opened up Hearing and Beyond here in Vietnam. Now, actually, I'm, my, my brain is going so slow because what you've just said has been really, really powerful. And I'm thinking to myself, there's another podcast in there. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also conscious that we want to get to Hearing yeah. and Beyond. Now, last night I read, I, I was looking through your website about mm. hearing and beyond, and I read what we do, the what we do section, mm -hmm. and I sent it to two of my friends. I sent it to Matthew Manfredi, uh, shout out to Mr. Manfredi. Matthew Manfredi is the head teacher of Danube International School in Vienna, good friend of mine, and I sent it to another fellow I know, he's a cowboy actually. He literally is a cowboy. <laughs> and I said to them, take a read of this. This is incredibly powerful. And I'm going to read it out for everybody to hear. And you can comment on it. Mm -hmm. So hearing and beyond in Vietnam, what we do. At hearing and beyond, we change lives. Without an education, the ability to communicate or be being accepted into their communities, life for deaf and hard of hearing children is extremely dismal. Work opportunities are very limited and the children will always remain socially isolated. We have taken 26 children and completely turned their lives around. In a country where early friendships last a lifetime, our children are no longer alone. They have friends. They have developed a love of learning and exploring the world around them. Learning to read and write ensures they can communicate in the hearing world. Along with the normal reading, writing, mathematics, mathematics, speech and sign language lessons, our children are also developing their life skills. This education and the skills they are learning has ensured that life has changed drastically. Not just for our students, but also for their children in years to come. Now, my, I don't know if you realize just how powerful that is. And when I read it, I wrote down this just at the bottom of the page. You are changing lives of these children, but you're also helping create new lives, which may never have been possible. Yep. Can you talk to us about Hearing and Beyond in Vietnam and how it came about? Okay, so really, uh, you've heard of the accidental tourist. I'm the accidental philanthropist. So my plan was just to come and volunteer for three months with another charity. And in that three months, I realized that there were so many deaf and hard of hearing children here but none of the other charities were doing anything for them. And, of course, by that stage, I'm single. I've got no commitments. So I thought, well, I could help one or two. Um, so I did. I find um, two children who were deaf, 
and find someone to teach them just for a few hours a night, three nights a week. And then, and I thought that was great, but um, then I had another child come and of course I accepted that child. And then that teacher got married and moved away. So I had to send my three children to a Catholic school in Da Nang, um, which had deaf children plus a lot of children with uh, Down syndrome. So those three children were there for a bit over a year, I think, and I hated it. I hated that place. Still do to this day because of the way the children were treated. Anyway, eventually I find a teacher in Hoi An, the kids came back home, and I had three children to teach. I had a deaf cook cleaner, that in itself is another story, and things were going along fine, and then oh, another child came, oh, we can squeeze another one in, another one. Some bugger keeps taking more children, so we've now got 24 children, which is a bit more than my salary as a nurse can support. When the children come to school, every single one of them, they are so scared. A, they're scared of a Westerner, um, but they're also so scared to be out of their environment because they don't go anywhere. They stay at home. In Vietnam, it's still commonly believed that if you have a physical disability, you automatically have a cognitive disability. And my friends in Hoi An all said to me at the time, you can't teach them, they're deaf. They really believed you could not teach these children. So they all come absolutely scared. They come in kicking and screaming. They don't want to come inside. And within maximum two weeks, these children are running into school. They jump off the motorbike and they just run because they know they're not alone anymore. Um, in fact, a lot of the children at the weekends, the parents have to drive them past the school so they can see there is no school today because they can't explain to them why it's the weekend. There's nowhere for you to go. And for most of the children at home, there are literally... No storybooks, no pens, no crayons, no pencils, no pepper to draw on. There is nothing. And that's okay for about the first maybe five years. The local kids will play with you. Once they hit around five years, the older kids really start drifting away and they literally have no one. So there's no one they can say, um, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm, I've got pain. Uh, they can't communicate with anyone. It's so lonely. So when they go from that environment and they come to school where there are smiles, there's games, there's colour, there's stimulation, it's like watching a flower open up. They literally bloom. So... For a child who has none of that, what sort of an adult do they become? The boys often get into drugs and alcohol. The girls will often get pregnant because some lovely boy is suddenly showing them attention. And, and they don't know anything. No one can warn them about the, the trials in life. 
No one can educate them about how to keep themselves safe. So for this group of children, their lives have turned around 360 degrees and, as I said on the website, it changes the lives of their children because their parents are going to be educated. They can live in the hearing world. So it's a massive change for all these children. And in fact, we've even had, um, I think we've had five children transition to mainstream schooling. So by the time they transition, they're about 10 years old, but the Vietnamese government says, when you start school, you start in grade one. So these 10-year-olds have to start in grade one and go through the whole system. Even though they've already learned that part of the curriculum, they must start again. But they do it, and the parents are happy for them to do it because it means they get uh, normal education. Incredible. I know. <laughs> it's I'm struggling to... I'm struggling to formulate a sentence to to respond to all of that, Mai. And, you know, everything that you just said there, I actually saw with my own eyes when yeah. I went down to visit your school. And I think you have to see it. It's, you know, I had friends from Australia who'd been in Hoi An for a couple of years and then they came back every year and visited. And, you know, they've known all along about my school but they'd never actually got to visit it. And they always said, you know, what you're doing is fantastic, it's awesome. And then one day they said, you know, we've never been to your school. We should come and have a look. And they did. They came and they were blown away. They knew what I was doing. But knowing and seeing is often two different things. And so to see these children really does make it hit home what we're doing for them. The joy on their faces when I was down I that know. day was was incredible. It, yeah. it was so beautiful. Yeah. I don't think they'd seen a ginger before. No, that was the, gin, <laughs> the ginger and the amount of hair on the arms. That <laughs> just blows them away every time. Incredible. Um, you know, it, it's getting back to suffering and what we were talking about earlier. It's, it's vir virtually impossible to not feel happy when you're doing something like that. I know, I know. I go to school every day, literally every day. I am hugged and kissed and cuddled and smiled at like you wouldn't believe. I mean, how can you have a bad day when that's what greets you when you get to work? I've got two cats. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. You're, you're way behind in the happiness from me, I must say. I, I believe so. <laughs> yeah. My, I'm... I'm really, I'm really proud of what you do. It's beautiful. It really, really mm. is beautiful. Mm. And I encourage anybody that's listening to this in Hoi An to get in touch with Mai, go and see her school, help her out in any way possible. Um, donate if you can. We will put a link uh, to the in the show notes uh, to donate to Hearing at Beyond in Hoi An. And I guess at this stage. I have to give a big shout out to my family and friends. Oh, yes. You have such a good family. <laughs> they are gorgeous. I know that already. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I put a, I put a, 
well, it wasn't an SOS out to my family and friends, but you know, every year I do Movember, um, and 2009, what year is this May? 21. Oh yeah, thanks for telling me. You didn't do it in 20? I didn't do it in 20, you know why? Because I was here in Vietnam, and there was a lot going on, yeah. there, was, there was a lot of things with the floods going on, yeah, and yeah. I really didn't want to start asking people for money for a charity yeah, when there was absolutely. so much going on yeah. in the local area. So I waited to January, and then I, I put a put a message out to my friend saying, you know, I didn't knock on your door this uh, <laughs> November, just gone. It, it's uh, So I asked them to donate to you, and fair play to all of them who did donate. Uh, my family at home and my friends in China, a big shout-out yeah. to Jennifer and uh, her husband, David Pratt, uh, who donated to you as well? Yeah. Might be Platt, I can't remember. Or, uh, uh, but I will put uh, I will put a link to donate in the show notes. And actually, I must tell you a funny story. Last night, when I was reading through your website and looking at the donate, I I was looking through my contacts and I saw one of my friends who's John in Galway, and I was like, you know what? I didn't knock on his door for a donation. <laughs> so I sent him a text last night saying. <gasps> There's gonna be a there's gonna be a knock at your door for a donation coming soon, <laughs> and he went. I never got what I last donated for, so he donated, and he was supposed to have a calendar. That calendar is sitting in a bar in Zuhai, oh, the Irish really? bar in Zuhai. Yeah, he never got it, but anyway, John, you'll still be donating to Hearing and Beyond for my fantastic. Now, my that's enough from me. I am assuming with COVID, you're facing many challenges. How can people help you? Okay. So one of the problems, two of the problems we've had directly because of COVID, we have lost donors um, who used to donate regularly, direct debits from their bank. They have stopped. Uh, the other problem we have is the families here in Hoi An, because tourism is gone, there is literally no work for them. With the storms we had, for the builders, for the fishermen, there was no work. So a lot of families um, have needed extra help. So not only have we lost donors, but we need to give extra financial help for food. Um, in Vietnam, Tet Holiday, which has just passed, is hugely important. If you don't have a good Tet, and that means plenty of food, one set of new clothes, you are going to have a very bad year. A lot of our families just haven't got the money to buy their children new clothes. So we've actually had to give them money to help them. And it's not a lot of money. It was like $30 to a couple of families, which means they firmly believe they will now have a good year in 2021 because they have enough food and they have new clothes for the Tet holiday. So yeah, finances is always going to be a big problem for every charity. But I think recently, like over the last few years, and I'm talking mostly Australia here because that's where I know, um, charity has become synonymous with big business. It's a great money maker. Because you set up a charity and you set yourself up as the director with a big salary and you have staff that get a big salary. Um, 
And so it's not a charity, it's a business. There are very few real charities anymore. And definitely Herring and Beyond, we're one of the, I think we're the only charity in Hoi An that can issue tax receipts without paying a company to do it for us. Um, and we're the only charity where Westerners don't receive a, st a salary. Only the Vietnamese staff receive a salary and 100% of all donations go directly to the school. So one of our best resources for sponsors or donations is what I call the e-coffee club. So my number one sister, my second number one sister, Kit McCann Barrett in Adelaide, she sent me an email oh, six years ago saying, you know, if we were in the same city, we would be meeting at least once a week to go and have a coffee together. And a coffee's around $4.50, $5. So that's $5 a week. So from now on, I'm going to put $20 a month into the school's bank account. And that's the equivalent of us having a coffee every week. And she said to me since then, I have never once missed that $20. It's a direct debit. I don't even see it. It goes straight from her bank to the school bank. Can you imagine how much that has helped over six years, $20 a month? So those donors are fantastic. We have a couple of donors that give a lot more than that and we're so grateful. We have a Rotary Club in Melbourne, Camberwell Rotary, who have helped us with many projects. And we're so grateful for all the support but one of the things I do find with donations is a lot of people will say, we want to donate, but we don't want to just give money. We want to buy something. How many desks do we need? How many books do we need that are so cheap here? Having donations like that are fantastic when we need them, but they're no good to us if I can't pay the teacher's salary if I can't pay the rent on the house, if I can't buy the food for the children. So while it's fantastic, and I totally understand why people want to see where their money goes, they want something concrete so they know their money's been spent where it's supposed to. But just our running costs, that's where we need the help. And it's so easy. I mean, me, one person. One person has helped so many children. You know, if I find 50 people who are willing to donate $20 a month, automatic deduction, oh my God, that would be like winning lotto. So I do understand that people want to buy something specific, but if they really want to donate from their heart, donate to keep us open. You can also sponsor a child, can't you? You can sponsor. So if we take the full monthly cost of keeping the school open and divide it by the number of students, it's about 100 Australian dollars a month. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of money. But what we do welcome is people to join together either as a family or as a group from work 
join together and each contribute towards that donation, that sponsorship. So, you know, we could have 5, 10, 20 people sponsoring a child. They don't have to pay full sponsorship. Okay. Thank you very much, my Flat. Um, we are going to take a, a short break now. And in the final part of the show, I want you to actually explain to people why there is such a high incidence of uh, hearing issues in Vietnam sure. and what teaching looks like um, in hearing and beyond. Because many people, and I included, was like, how do you teach somebody cannot hear yeah so let's take a short break and we'll come back for that final part of the show we promise you folks in good irish it's an irish promise we'll keep it short <laughs> <laughs> like a nurse's minute i don't know uh, anything about that <laughs> welcome back to the final part of today's show on prs radio da Nang and hoi an my name is eugene leonard your host and founder of this podcast channel, radio station, or whatever you like to call it. <laughs> PRS Radio Da Nang and Hoi An was actually started by me in Shenzhen, China, way back in 2019 BC. That's before, <laughs> before Corona, I call it. Ah, you're right. Now, PRS Radio Da Nang and Hoi An podcasts are available on Apple, Google, Spotify, Breaker, Outcast, Pocketcast, and many, many more platforms where podcasts are available. Please remember to like, subscribe, comment to the podcast wherever you do listen to it. And if you like it, share it with your friends. If you don't like it, keep share quiet. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell anybody. Okay. Now, I'm really, as I said at the top of, top of the hour, top of the show, really honored to have Mai McCann uh, talking to us today. We've heard all about Hearing and Beyond in Vietnam, the wonderful organization that she set up here for deaf and hard of hearing children in Hoi An. Please, as we said in the last part of the show, if you can, go onto their website, hearingandbeyondinvietnam.org, and set up a little donation. You can do a one-off donation, or you can uh, set up a monthly payment. Please, And if you're in the local area, my encourages you, please visit. Please visit, see the facility for yourself. Now, my, we're reaching the conclusion of the show. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I would like you to explain to people, and it was something when I first talked to you a couple of months ago, we were having coffee, and you said you had 24, 26 children at Hearing Beyond. And I said, whoa, is that not a lot of children with hearing difficulties in the area? And then on your website, it says, in Vietnam, there are approximately 200,000 children under the age of 18 with hearing loss. I was blown away mm -hmm. by that. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to people why this is? Sure. There's actually three main reasons for hearing loss in Vietnam. And they're three things that are so easily fixed. So the first one is rubella. German measles. Until fairly recently, women were given the rubella vaccine as they walked into the hospital to have their scheduled C-section for the delivery of the baby. Um, there's no point giving a vaccine as you're about to give birth. You've got to have it before you get pregnant. Um, so they weren't doing that. 
Fortunately, they are now doing that. And three months before women get married, they're allowed to have the vaccine. Tough luck for the girls who are not planning on getting married but end up pregnant anyway. You don't get it. Um, the second one is gentamicin. Gentamicin is an antibiotic that is so overused in Vietnam. If you have a broken leg or an ear infection or a cough, if you go to the doctor, chances are you will be given antibiotics, steroids, vitamin C, vitamin D, and the antibiotic of choice is gentamicin. Now, gentamicin is known to cause blindness and deafness in an unborn child. So again, that is so easily treatable. Um, the third problem is simply what we call glue ear. So for those who don't know what glue ear is, um, it's repeated ear infections in young children that go untreated and this damages the hearing canal and can lead to permanent deafness. It's so simple to fix, and I'm sure lots of people listening, their children have grommets put in their ears when they're quite young, and this just keeps the, the canal open, so if they get an infection, the fluid can drain out. Now, it's so easy, but over here... The doctors don't actually know anything about it. So the children have repeated ear infections because of the poor hygiene, the living in close quarters. Um, and so they're always having antibiotics. The, glue, the infections do damage the eardrums. And all three reasons are so easy to remedy. Things are improving now. They are improving. They're now giving the girls the vaccine before they get married. Um, there's still no improvement in the repeated ear infections and there's really no... I don't see any improvement in the overuse of gentamice and the antibiotic. My, we're going to conclude today with... What does education look like for your children? Because it was one of the first things that came to my head. And let me tell you an interesting story, because I just want to go back to this. We were talking about getting out of self. Mm -hmm. And it was about January. And I, I'd shared it in a couple of platforms. January is a very difficult month. Um, you know, I had like four months of rain. And I was yeah. sitting and... Yeah, I was feeling pretty miserable myself. And I was thinking, okay, well, I'd sort of learned these lessons. I'm, I'm going to have to go uh, go and help help other people. And when I, I, I saw your organization on Facebook, Hearing and Beyond, and I think actually you had sent me an email about six months ago. Mm. I would written an article and I remembered your name and I saw it. And I thought to myself, you know what, I, I should contact my and go and help her uh, with, at this organization. And when I saw Hearing and Beyond and I started looking into it, one of the first things that came into my head was, how do you teach somebody who cannot hear? And I'm, I'm still not 100% mm. sure. So mm. can you just let people know? Because I'm sure lots of people think exactly the yeah, same. Yeah, I did. Mm. I, and I still don't understand how they can do it, but mm. they do do it. 
Um, so it's much slower, obviously. Um, it takes a lot of time and patience, which is why we try to keep our classrooms so small, um, because one-on-one -on -one is far better for the children. So we've been very fortunate in the past that we've had um, Newcastle University final year speech therapy students come, come to our school and help to teach the teachers how to teach the children to articulate. Um, so it's got a lot to do with showing the children the breath signs, having them feel your throat, feel the air coming out of your mouth, uh, letters with no breath coming out of your mouth, nasal vibrations. It's very slow. It's very much about showing the child, repeatedly showing the child. Um, and you would be surprised how quickly they do learn. Because keep in mind, most of these children come to me when they're around five years old, five or six They've had five years of nothing, absolutely nothing. So their brain is like a sponge. It just sucks up every ounce of knowledge they can get. So we do use, we have started using um, technology. We have um, microphones that are connected by Bluetooth to the children's hearing aid. So it sounds like the teacher is standing in front of the child. It will cut out background noises like fans, trucks, motorbikes. Um, we're also using an interactive classroom where the children have a Samsung tablet that is connected to the smart TV and they do lessons with the TV, so they think they're playing. They really think they're playing a game. They don't understand that they are learning. So it's a long, slow process, but then you get the day where you can see on the child's face, I get it. Now I know what all those signs, R, E, E, suddenly they know what it means and they can incorporate it with their lessons. And that's the moment that makes it all worthwhile. Oh, does it ever. It's like we've got one wee boy, Ken. He's been with us for six years. That boy would not utter a sign for the first four years, I think. Not one sign came out of his mouth. And then one day with the Australian speeches, um, he started making a sign, not a word, a sign. And every time he made a sign, they gave him a happy face sticker. And I've got a photo of him. He came into my office with a grin a mile wide with all these stickers showing that he had made a sign. So that was about maybe two years ago. He's nigh starting to speak. So it's a long, slow process. And it takes a lot of work from the teachers because they're not trained. They're not trained teachers and they're definitely, definitely not trained in disabilities, let alone deafness. So it's been a huge learning curve for them and they're now passing that learning on to the children.
My, on a number of occasions, and actually during the break of this show, I said to you that I'm actually speechless. I, I am speechless, and I'm, I'm struggling at times just to, just to take everything in that you are telling me and formulate a question in response, because I've been to your center, I've seen what you do there. It is absolutely amazing. And I really encourage everybody in the area to get down, to take a look at what you're doing and to help you out because the work is just wonderful. And I want to say, I just want to say you're an incredible lady. You really, really are an incredible lady. And I'm very, I'm really, I mean it. I'm very, I'm very honored to know you. I'm very mm -hmm. honored to get to know you in the, in the last few months. And I'm very proud. Very proud that you're Irish. <laughs> <laughs> Can I pull you up on one mistake there? Oh, just one? Just the, only the one. I'm not an incredible person. I am one person doing what I love doing. So I'm not different to anyone else. I just fell into this situation. And anybody can make the same difference in these children's lives. They don't have to physically do something. They don't have to go off and set up something. Um, you know, I'm not, I never set out to change the world. I just want to help a few children. And I just need more people like me who just want to do a little bit. Okay, well, I might have been mistaken. You're an incredibly humble person. <laughs> <laughs> and humility... I think I read somewhere that humility is an essential element in the creation of a beautiful legacy. <gasps> wow. Actually, it's written on my wall over there. I call this my wall of shame, my, but it's beautiful. Oh, quotes, it's a so. beautiful wall. I love it. <laughs> I love all the sayings. And this has been so awesome for my kids, Eugene. I'm so grateful for helping to put the word out there because the more people know about us, the more chance we have of staying open. Absolutely, and we will put all of those links that we talked about in the show notes. Now, Mai and I are sitting here in Hoi An in Vietnam. We're actually in my bedroom. <laughs> it's all kosher. It's all kosher. <laughs> in Anamanaharag Zimbik. Um, now, you know, I, I've got to give a couple of shout-outs before the show Absolutely. finishes. We are actually sitting drinking apple and cinnamon tea from the Windsor Tea House in Da Nang. My first time and I'm hooked already. <laughs> there you go, Jan Mohammed. Now the shout out is to Philippe, who you know from Cambodia. Yes. I went out to my front yard uh, yesterday afternoon and Philippe had visited the Windsor Tea House yesterday in yeah. Da Nang and he had brought me home a little case ah, of tea. Now, gorgeous. thank you very much, Philippe, for that tea and he had visited there yesterday. He knows us. Exactly. He knows us as well. If you haven't visited the Windsor Tea House in Denang, I tell all my friends to go there. It is the most beautiful, serene place in Denang. I love the place. And the owner, Jan Mohammed, and his wife, wonderful wife, Hayan Kian. I'm terrible with names. Sorry, mm -hmm. Mr. Mohammed, please forgive me. Uh, please go and visit their place. Hayan is a wonderful pastry chef. The scones with cream and jam is oh. awesome. This so. this is a this is a, an advertisement for the Windsor Tea House in Denang. Jan, I want a free cup of tea from this. <laughs> now, why I do mention the Windsor Tea House, our next guest on the show 
uh, in the middle of March, of course I had to get an Irishman. And there's an Irish musician up, he's an Irish man and an Irish musician, mm -hmm. Irish musician man, called Colin Devaney. He's from Col Galway. And I got in touch with Colin yesterday and I said to him, uh, would you like to be a guest on the show in the middle of March? And he, he said, absolutely. So I'm going to meet Colin on Sunday in the Windsor Tea House to discuss uh, the next episode on the show. And I'm actually going to see his band playing Saturday night at the Trip 66. It's Eastside All-Star Denang, their funk band. I listened to them online. Absolutely amazing. Really, mm. really looking forward to going to that. But that's the next guest in the show. And I actually might even use one of Colin's songs uh, as the tune at the end of this show. Now, my just finishing up, is there any last words that we haven't covered on the show so far? Uh, from me, all I want to say is thank you. All I can say is, Slancha, come on, wrap new. I'm very grateful. Thank you, Eugene. Listen, my, the honour is all mine. Thank you very much. And the best of luck to you. Cheers. <laughs>it ladies and gentlemen what can i say about my mccann she is simply an amazing woman i really am in awe of everything she has done particularly overcoming her own personal suffering and not only surviving but thriving thereafter in the setting up of hearing and beyond in hoi an she is truly the first lady of prs radio da nang and hoi an Listen, Maya, I'd just like to thank you for coming on this podcast and thank you for everything you have done in the community. Now, tomorrow night, that's Saturday the 26th, I am going to the Trip 66 in Da Nang to listen to Eastside All Stars, who are a funk band. Apparently, they offer a mix of early funk and modern bangers. <laughs> and they guarantee you that they're going to fill the floor and keep it moving all night. Well, I'll be there to check that out and see if that uh, if they live up to that promise. Now, their lead singer is Mr. Colin Devaney, a Galway lad, who I am delighted to confirm as the next guest on PRS Radio, Da Nang and Hoi An, mid-March. Listen, it could only be an Irishman in March. It's a very important, very important month for the Irish people with my birth and St. Patrick's Day as well, of course. Now, Colin himself is an outstanding musician who claims to be handsome, intelligent, honest, humble and modest in equal measures. I'm going to leave you now with one of his song called, songs called See the Light and the album is This Is The Sound which he released on the 7th of July 2012. I'll put a link uh, to the album in the show notes. It's well worth buying. It's a wonderful album. At extraordinary times like these throughout the world, we should do our bit to support each other as best we can. Support the arts and support everyone in the community. Have a great week, everybody. With Mr. Terpod, you are not alone. <laughs>